This week's badass is Kristen Gotham Tuma. In, um, let's see, 2008, I was supposed to get married. It was the morning of my bachelorette party. So I laughed because <laughs> um, my, my bachelorette party, I had people flying in from all over the country, a lot from here, a lot from the East Coast. And we were going to go on a, a cruise. And so we're supposed to go on this cruise. There's a hurricane forming in the Gulf, Hurricane Ike. And I didn't know what to do because the cruise was going. And I was like, well, the cruise is going because you know, when a hurricane comes, it's very unpredictable at first. You don't know how strong it's gonna be. They wobble, you don't know where they're gonna hit. But I'm thinking no matter what, there's a huge hurricane in the Gulf. The ship is leaving from Galveston. Um, I don't know what to do. It was all on me. Welcome to another episode of the Badass Women of Central Park where every time we bring you an awesome journey of a badass woman in our neighborhood. My name is Dan Clark, and it is my honor to host this podcast and get to learn from so many of you each time. It is my goal for you to see yourself as the badass you truly are. This week's badass is Kristen Gotham Tuma. She grew up in Fort Collins and began her love for photography as a yearbook photographer in junior high. She then moved to the Houston-Galveston area for college and remained there until 2021. Her sister and parents lived in Conservatory Green and she fell in love with the neighborhood on their biannual visits. Her move was sparked by COVID and the desire to be closer to family, live the outdoor lifestyle that Denver has to offer, and raise their kids in an amazing community. Leaving her successful photography business back in Houston was difficult, and in Denver she's had to start again from square one. As you can imagine, this has been both challenging and rewarding at the same time, but Kristen has an amazingly positive attitude. She loves meeting her neighbors, learning their stories, and sharing them through her personal branding photography. This week's podcast is brought to you by the Mama Bird Project. How are you doing with the documentation of your grandparents' stories, your parents' stories, or even the wisdom and time capsule of your young ones? In the Mama Bird Project, we empower young, black, Latina, and indigenous women from Montbello through documenting the stories and wisdom of your loved ones. Our women are conducting graduation conversations, engagement conversations, and wisdom conversations with your elders. It only costs $100 and all that money goes directly to our women. We are doing such good and important work. Please support the Mama Bird Project. Okay, good morning, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, you are another person that I don't know in real life and don't know much about, so I'm really excited to get to learn about you and learn from you. And um, we just talked a little bit before this and you are very interesting. So I'm excited to learn more about you. you. Um, can you can you start me off just talking about kind of your transition to Denver because you're relatively new to our community and I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about where you were um, living before and, and what brought you to Denver? Absolutely, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So I actually grew up in Fort Collins. I was raised there and my family was all there. and I moved for college, so a long time ago, and I decided to go to A&M in Galveston. So I moved to the, you know, South Texas or Southeast Texas, Galveston, Houston area, and that's where I was until a year and a half ago when we decided, uh, my husband and I and our kids, to move back to Colorado. Really was hoping to just get closer to family, and you know, I think COVID just kind of made everybody reevaluate and you know look at their lives and 
Denver was the place my husband had always wanted to be because we had come twice a year to visit family. And, uh, you know, my parents were getting older and I had left when my siblings, you know, my sister was 15 when I left. And so it just seems like a really great opportunity to move back for me and then move my family. And so we picked Central Park specifically because my sister's in Conservatory Green and my goal was to get as close to her as I could be. I know if you're even 20 minutes away, you don't get that everyday interaction. And um, I was looking for that. So my sister was in Conservatory Green and we got as close as we could in the 2021 housing market, trying to buy from a different state. <laughs> Actually found our house through Facebook, did a 20 minute, um, what do you call it? Like FaceTime meeting and said, well, we'll buy it. And so <laughs> with the help of my sister, we were able to get into Beeler Park. So feel very fortunate to even get in the neighborhood at a time at that time but loving it love being love being part of central park and love being closer to family what are some things or anything that you think of specifically i'm in a different location than where i live currently and so i'm thinking about things that i miss and, and kind of comparing and contrasting what things i've never i've never ever been to houston i've been to texas a few times what things do you miss about texas <laughs> the number one thing is other than obviously friends and family is food Houston is an amazing um, just melting pot of all these cultures, so diverse, so international. You have so many first generation, second generation immigrants. And so all the food and the culture is just amazing. If you want, you know, Persian food, the Persians are running it. You want Italian food, the Italians are running it. Like, and so just really great um, food. And it's a food culture, you know, people eat for entertainment and I think here in Denver people go outside and hike and move for entertainment and so that's a much healthier way to be and I do love that but when I go back I'm definitely getting some Tex-Mex and <laughs> some other some other delights that we love there. I grew up in San Diego and one of the things I missed instantly is kind of I call it I guess Southern California Mexican food that I just love um, but I finally found in Montbello Taco Star has my very similar, the, the kind of exact Mexican food that I love to the point where when I go back home, I don't even need to eat my carne asada burrito anymore because I can get it locally here. So, so I'm excited okay. about that. But you, but you are exactly right. That does sound like a much healthier lifestyle to be outside. And I think we take that for granted so much being in Denver that that's not the way it goes around the rest of the country necessarily. Um, so the biggest things I've noticed is just the kids you know, my kids play outside and they do it all year. It's not like winter stops them. And I love that because Houston, um, I think being a bigger city for one, you're less likely to just have your kids outside. And then just the heat feels very oppressive a lot of the year. And so my kids are much, much more active here. And I really love that. And tell me a little bit about another part of this in your move. And we talked a little bit about this before is I'm interested in you're establishing both your business there and just your friends and, and in your community. Tell me about um, at this point in your life, moving to a, a completely, you're moving back home, but you're moving to a completely new community and kind of how that's gone for you. Yeah, so it's been really interesting. I had been in the Houston Galveston area um, for 27 years. And so <laughs> to pick up and move here was definitely, you know, an experience and it was great but challenging, you know, for my business specifically, I had been established in Houston and had a lot of clients and had people who knew me and a lot of referrals. And I wasn't 
you know, out hunting for the business, so to speak, and then moving to a place where nobody knows you, you know, you're starting from ground zero, you know, you're starting at baseline again, trying to just build up, let people know who you are, let them know what services you offer. And so it's been fun and challenging at the same time. And so just really trying to get out there, let people know what I do and what I can offer, how I can benefit them. And how did you get into photography originally? Well, that I actually started a long time ago. I was a yearbook photographer at Bolts Junior High back in the late 80s. <laughs> so that is sort of where I fell in love with the camera, telling people stories through the lens. And back then, we shot in mostly black and white because we developed our own film. So not only did I learn how to take pictures of people, I also had the great privilege of learning how to develop in the dark room. And so I just fell in love with it. Just fell in love with photography and people telling their stories. And so it started back then. Yeah, and it's such a relationship business. And, and I think that you're, you're, you're talking about telling stories, which I think is so powerful too. Um, when you were um, starting out kind of the business side and, and doing that part of it, um, was that a difficult transition for you to, to take it from an art and a, and a passion into kind of business or how, how did that go for you and how did you attack that when you first started out? Right. So in my late, I kind of I did the yearbook thing and then I, you know, always played with the camera as a hobby, but didn't do much. And then in my late 20s, I was working as a pharmaceutical rep doing the corporate thing and decided, no, I need some adventure. So I actually left and moved to the Cayman Islands. I lived in Grand Cayman and worked as an underwater videographer. So that was amazing because I got to scuba dive all day and tell people stories of their vacation and um, you know, playing with the stingrays, snorkeling with the fish, playing with the sharks. And so that was amazing. And I did that for about 18 months. And when I moved back to Texas and kind of got back into you know, um, I got a job at GSK doing sales again. I really wanted to keep photography in my life. So I found one of those leisure learning courses at Rice University and went to that. And on the very first day, it was a husband and wife team that taught and they were wedding photographers. So on the first day of class, I went up to them and said, you know, do you need an intern? And, and from there on, just established a beautiful relationship with this couple who taught me really everything I know. So I was kind of thrown right into the wedding photography world, which is an amazing way to learn photography because you cannot, you learn not to mess up. You know, you have one time to get the kiss, you're in low light situations, you know, the first dance, the cake. And so it was high pressure, but I loved it. And um, so really re-engaged my love in photography, learned so much. And then they also taught me about editing, which, you know, this day and age can't be a professional photographer without knowing your way around Photoshop, how to edit. And so I've really been working on those skills for the last um, 20 years. And from there, you know, I worked with them, shot hundreds of weddings, was able to shoot in Europe. One of my friends got married on the coast of Cornwall in a thousand year old church, just amazing. Um, shot in Hawaii, shot at vineyards across the country and did that for a while. And then I wanted to have my own family. And so it kind of, I went through different stages, but um, you know, shot babies and photographed families and then really kind of just ended up 
in about the last five or six years, really focused on headshots and small business branding. And so that's where I found my niche and my love. And that's what I work for today is just to help, you know, help you feel beautiful in your headshots and then to get really, you know, effective and strategic branding photos for small businesses. Yeah, I wanted to, we'll get back to the photography too later, but I did want to talk about, because you talked about the, the birth of one of your children. I want you, when, when um, you filled up a little form I have for what we should talk about, one of the things you talked about was overcoming obstacles, which I thought was great and, and something that's so powerful. Um, tell me about the that, your birth experience. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> the birth of my first child, you know, you have all these expectations and dreams of what it'll be like, mostly just having a healthy child, giving birth and holding them. And that wasn't quite my experience. Um, it was the morning of my baby shower. I was 26 weeks pregnant and my sister had come down from here. She was down in Houston with me. And I just wasn't feeling very well. Didn't really know what's going on. And eventually realized I needed to get to the hospital and show up. And they're like, you're in labor, which I kind of have a very Pollyanna <laughs> upbeat look on things. And so much so that my head is just stuck in the sand half the time. I'm thinking it's 5 a.m. It's okay. They'll fix me up. My shower's not till 11. I'll be able to get there. <laughs> Little did I know that wasn't quite how it happened. So I um, was in the hospital a few days. They were able to stop the labor. I went home. And then after going home, just having a quick shower, getting to bed, it happened again. My, my, my labor started again, went back in, and they had to do an emergency C-section. So my daughter was born at uh, 27 weeks in one day, and she was, I mean, she was amazing. I was so lucky in so many ways. She actually, although being small, she was about two pounds, was her smallest. Um, she was fine. And so, so grateful because I know a lot of babies born preterm have a lot of issues, and we were pretty lucky in that they called her a grower. She was in the NICU um, for eight weeks. So all those things that you expect when you have a child to hold your baby. I didn't get to hold my baby. <laughs> I got to touch my baby through a box for about a week. I called it the box. It was obviously the incubator. And then after about a week, I got to hold her, which still isn't really holding her. They kind of put you skin to skin and you can't really touch them because their skin is so sensitive. Their nerves aren't developed. So you do like a firm sort of, you know, sort of a pressure, but you can't stroke you know, like you hold a newborn and stroke them. And of course I didn't get to go home with my baby. So she was there for eight weeks, but there was so many good things. She was in the hospital right close to our house. It was just a couple minutes away. And I was able to visit her every single day. And, you know, you just, you just deal with what you are dealt. <laughs> and um, she's amazing now she's 12 and she's at the Denver Green School and you would never know. So I just feel very fortunate that um, you know, sometimes life just gives you things that aren't exactly what you think, but you just run with it and they can turn out amazing in the end. Oh my gosh. And two pounds. I'm just trying to think of how tiny two pounds is. That's insanely tiny. She's tiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's look. funny to look back on the videos or, you know, the little diaper smaller than your cell phone and, um, it's incredible, but they do grow. They do grow. So Looking back at that now, 12 years later, are there lessons that that kind of experience and experience like that? I mean, I can imagine how scary that is in different ways. Like you said, she was healthy. So that was the, the main part. But what, what have you learned from that experience looking back 
Yeah, great question. I think that the most important thing is just to stay in the moment. You know, I think that I am not a worrier, but you know, you something like that happens, your mind can just go, you know, just go down a tunnel that's not a that's not good. And I'm I do feel grateful that I don't have that type of personality. I didn't Google anything, I didn't look up anything. I didn't even really listen to the doctors that much. I just kind of was like, here's my baby. She's fine. She's good today. And just kind of go with it moment by moment. And then, you know, a couple months later when she was home with me, I kind of started started Googling and doing the deep dive. And I'm so grateful I didn't because, you know, you're not always finding the best things on the internet. And so just being present, just taking what you have day by day and enjoying it. And um yeah, I mean, it was scary and it's not ideal, but I'm so grateful for her and, you know, just for the time, the time I get with her and my son. Yeah. Tell me about then you had your son and how was that? Was that a more normal birth? <laughs> not really. They um, found out that I actually have a genetic condition that made um, having my daughter difficult. It's called Ehlers-Danlos and it's just a connective tissue disorder. So with him, they knew that, which was great. And so I had some medical procedures. I um, stopped working. I was kind of on like a bed rest type situation starting at about 20 weeks or 22 weeks. I can't exactly remember. I had shots every week. Um, so it was something that I was highly monitored and was, you know, with him, we knew that he would come four weeks early because with her, when they did the emergency C-section, the uterus clamped down and they couldn't get her out. So they actually had to do what's called a cross cut and do like four cuts and kind of peel it like an orange. And when they do that, they don't let you have your second one. Um, they don't let you go too far because if you get too big, it can burst. So I knew he would be four weeks early. I ended up getting some high blood pressure and things. And so he was five weeks early, but all in all, he was amazing. He did, he was tiny, but he got to come home. He weighed, I think, um, four pounds, 10 ounces when he came home. So he was little, but he grew super fast, much faster than she did and, um, really had no issues. So I was just grateful to be able to take him home <laughs> and to hold him. I always, I always say, I learned about a new privilege that I have each day. And, and your story is reminding me of what our first baby was in vitro. And my wife is taking shots and doing all these things even before that process. And I always just said, you know, we're going to get the children we're meant to be with. It's all going to work out, which is easy for me to say on my side. Both pregnancies were really easy for me and both births were easy for me. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh. And I always think like you're looking back and you're not even, you know, for me, it's all worth it, obviously. And, and I don't remember those times, but I wasn't doing the real work. So, so good job with, with going yeah. through all that and doing all I, that. <laughs> I don't feel like I did that much either. I mean, I was lucky in that I felt good in my pregnancies. I think my body had a harder time, but I didn't you know, I felt great. I loved being pregnant and I just feel so grateful that I even got the chance to be, you know, I think it's a, it's a great thing. And, and I don't take that for granted. Okay. Let's move forward to another subject of adversity that we talked about a little bit too, and you've been impacted heavily by, and that's one thing I guess Texas does have that we don't have is, is hurricanes. I have never been a part of a hurricane or um, near one in any way. We've got family, some family that lives in Florida that occasionally we'll worry about in the East Coast, but pretty much stayed away from it. Tell me about how hurricanes have impacted you. <laughs> yes. So obviously moving down there from here, I had never experienced a hurricane either in the first 
I don't know, at least 10 years I was there, I feel like really nothing happened. And of course I was down there when Katrina happened. And while that didn't hit Houston at all, Houston did take on, you know, hundreds of thousands of um, refugees from Katrina. And so it kind of, you know, I think with a lot of people, but especially down there, it kind of put hurricanes on the map, so to speak, in my brain. And um, in, in um, let's see, 2008, I was supposed to get married. It was the morning of my bachelorette party. So I laughed because <laughs> um, my, my bachelorette party, I had people flying in from all over the country, a lot from here, a lot from the East Coast. And we were gonna go on a, a cruise. And so we're supposed to go on this cruise. There's a hurricane forming in the Gulf, Hurricane Ike. And I didn't know what to do because the cruise was going. And I was like, well, the cruise is going because you know, when a hurricane comes, it's very unpredictable at first. You don't know how strong it's gonna be. They wobble, you don't know where they're gonna hit. But I'm thinking no matter what, there's a huge hurricane in the Gulf. The ship is leaving from Galveston. Um, I don't know what to do. It was all on me and I just decided, okay, we're not going. The ship's going, we're probably gonna lose our money, but we won't go. Which turned out to be a really good decision. So I had all these people at my house um, for the hurricane. And we just made a party out of it. Luckily, Houston didn't get hit that bad. We had, you know, some rain and down trees, but Galveston, unfortunately, got slammed. They took a direct hit. And my wedding was supposed to be in Galveston four weeks from that date. And so bachelorette parties off, people are there. But then I'm like, what about my wedding? <laughs> and um, took a couple weeks to even figure out what was happening on the island and how bad it was. And um, of course, I was worried about my wedding, but also just, I love Galveston. I went to college in Galveston. I met my husband when we were down there, and it just has a huge part of my heart, that community. It's a wonderful community. I have a lot of friends and business owners, and, you know, they were, it was all destroyed for them. So it definitely, uh, we realized the wedding was not going to be happening um, because poor Galveston really needed to rebuild and they weren't going to be ready. And so we, postponed our wedding six months, which again, isn't ideal, but isn't a huge, you know, wasn't that big of a deal. We were already living together. So um, my husband's like, so what about Hawaii? Are we going on our honeymoon? I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to Hawaii. <laughs> I earned that at least. So um, that was kind of probably my first lesson in, you know, just rolling with the punches, you know, send out new invitations, make sure, you know, wait till Galveston's rebuilt and um, we had an amazing wedding six months later in March so did you go to the honeymoon before before the wedding did you, yeah. did, did you... <laughs> yes we went to we had 10 days in Hawaii planned and we went right the first time in in October and then after we got married we just did sort of a smaller honeymoon in um, Napa Valley in California so but I had felt I had earned Hawaii. I didn't want to postpone that. So <laughs> it was kind of funny. We show up and they're like, oh, congratulations on your wedding. I'm like, yeah, we didn't get married, but thank you. So that was kind of funny. So that was the first real big impact of a hurricane. And then the second one came in 2017 with Hurricane Harvey. And this one was a little different because the hurricane was tracking south of Houston and nobody was really expecting much in Houston. You know, the hurricane made landfall a couple hours south. They unfortunately took a huge hit and um, didn't think much of it. My husband had actually left on a business trip. He works in North Africa and Algeria. So 
he had left on the Friday and we knew the hurricane was kind of coming and he was like, should I go? Should I not go? And I'm thinking, no, just go. Because in my head, worst case scenarios, we're out of power. So if you've ever been to South or Houston in the summer in late August without power, it is not a place you want to be. It's like a bazillion degrees with a million percent humidity. It is hot. It is miserable. And that's what I'm sort of seeing in my head is, you know, we're going to be without power. I have a three-year-old, a six-year-old. There's no reason for you to be here. Just go on your business trip. So he leaves and um, we're at a friend's house. Um, again, not expecting much from this thing. And then it starts raining. And in Houston, it's very common to have these sort of flash floods of the streets. That's not uncommon. It happens a few times a year. You just learn, you don't drive you know, when, when the flood is happening. So we were at some friend's house that happened and I was less than a mile away. We're talking like Wheeler Park to Conservatory Green, very, very close, but over a bayou. And we decided, okay, we can't really get home tonight. No big deal, we'll go in the morning, put my kids to bed. But we had a puppy. We had a 10 week old puppy who was locked at home in his crate. <laughs> so my biggest concern was this poor little guy needs to get let out. So a couple hours later, the water recedes and my friend takes me to the house. We let the puppy out, lock the puppy back up in his cage and I don't grab anything. I don't grab an overnight bag. I don't, I'm just, I'm very go with the flow. And I was like, oh, no big deal. We'll be back in the morning. I put nothing away. <laughs> don't worry about anything. There wasn't a thought in my head that I wouldn't be here eight hours later and everything would be normal. And in the backyard we were on like a bayou tributary so when the bayous get too full you have these offshoots that are meant to flood so our, our backyard had about a 40 foot ravine and my friend and I went out back there it was probably 11 30 at night not a drop in the ravine no flooding nothing and so I'm like all right no worries we'll just you know lock up the puppy and I'll be back in the morning their house wasn't really equipped to take on a dog so it was not a concern about 5 a.m. the next morning, I get a text from my neighbor and she's like, are you home? And I said, no, we're, you know, in the next neighborhood over. She's like, there's water in the house. And I'm just thinking, there's what, what? Like it didn't even, all I could think about was this poor puppy. So I'm calling all my neighbors, trying to get somebody over there. Luckily a neighbor, the electricity still worked even though the floodwaters had risen and were a couple feet in the streets. And he was able to get in our house through the garage and get the puppy out. It was a 10 week puppy. He was, I think about 10 pounds and he was very little. And he said he was about 20 minutes from drowning, that the cage was bobbing in the water. We had a 1960s house that had those sunken rooms. <laughs> You've ever seen those, like the sunken living room? And he was in there. And so all the water was pouring in there. And I'm just, I was so grateful that, that my neighbor the one neighbor told me they were flooding, but the other neighbor was able to go get him. And so while that neighbor was in my house, he saw my computer. I had a computer bag just sitting on the couch or wherever. And just by a stroke of absolute luck or fate or whatever you want, I had all my hard drives in that computer bag that housed my hundreds of thousands of photos. And it wasn't usually in the bag, but it was that day because I had been out somewhere and he put that bag on top of the refrigerator, which I'm so grateful for because we had flooding higher than the kitchen counters. So he it saved my photos, which 
was huge to me at the time. But anyway, we go home, fast forward the next couple of days, I just watched my house flood and flood and flood from my friends who I was at. And <laughs> my husband takes a couple of days to get where he is in Africa. So he left on Friday and Sunday morning is when this is all occurring. So I was able to get a hold of him as he landed um, at this tiny little airport in Algeria. And I said, you got to come back. We're, you know, we're flooding. <laughs> and so he didn't even leave the airport. He just got back on a flight. He still didn't get back to Houston until Wednesday afternoon. It took that long to even be able to enter the city. And so that was, that was quite the lesson is you're sitting there watching your house and all your belongings and your security just being stripped from you and <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of homes flooded and about 80% of them did not have flood insurance. And sadly we were among them. And when you don't have flood insurance, you get nothing, absolutely nothing. There's, there's no insurance, there's no money coming your way. And so that was, that was a huge challenge of our life because we're, you know, we had over four feet of water, which is above the kitchen counters, and it sat there for about two weeks. So it's not just water either. There's a sewage plant right near our house that of course was breached. So your items are sitting there in sewage and snakes and alligators. Like this water is nasty. <laughs> it's not water that you're going to like get your possessions and move on. So we, um, pretty much lost everything on our lower level, which included our master bedroom. And so, you know, I'm very, I'm kind of a sentimental person and I'm somebody who loves to keep all the little preschool drawings and all that stuff from your kids and all that was going on. My kids were three and six, but I was so grateful I had my kids and I was so grateful that they weren't there. We were at this friend's house. So that trauma of trying to get out of the house, which um, ton of my neighbors and their friends had to experience my kids got spared by being at their friend's house on a sleepover. So for them, it wasn't as difficult. Of course, they went to a sleepover and didn't go back to their house <laughs> for about four months. So there is that. But um, we just, there's so many great things that come out of tragedy like that. And the coming together of a community is one of them. Our community was amazing immediately you had sort of at the neighborhood rec center people where you could drop your kids so you could go get your house <laughs> you know and all these supplies and everything and it's interesting I think I come from you know I think you know just a normal life college educated and didn't really have much want for things in life and have been more on the giving end of help and then that time we're definitely on the receiving end. You know, you're just, and one thing I remember specifically is a big, huge truck came into our little tiny um, rec center and it was KBPI Rocks the Rockies. And I thought that was so cool because, you know, when you do give to areas of the country they're experiencing things, they get that and it means something. And it meant a lot to me that something from Colorado had gone down there, even if it's you know, paper towels and bleach, like you need paper towels and bleach. So it was um, incredible. It was also surreal, the um, National Guard or the, the entrance of our neighborhood, the entrance that didn't flood because there was a ton of looting obviously and things like that going on. So to enter your neighborhood and have 
military machine gun <laughs> national guard is not something you see in america too often so um it was really interesting but we were able to rebuild you know with the help of a lot of people a lot of friends and a lot of community so it just meant a lot and then again you just appreciate it more you just appreciate your home we appreciated so much that we could even get money for our home and be able to sell it not at a huge gain but enough that we were able to move here and so you know just just grateful that is an amazing story and i've never had to go through anything like that i had an uncle who lived in, in california and lost their home in the fires and yeah, it's it's they lost everything too, and and pictures which you are which you do for your career. That's always one of the first things you're taking these pictures and keepsakes, and it's never material things. It's all these other things. And that puppy, oh my gosh! When I was hearing you tell this story, I'm like, oh my gosh! Tell me that puppy. Tell me you got that puppy. He's good. Oh, he puppy, had the yeah. adventure. He went from I think he ended up at three or four different houses. So the neighbor that rescued him was a little bit higher than us across the street. Well, they flooded, so then they couldn't deal. You know, obviously they can't deal with him. He went to another neighbor down the street. He was there at that house a day or two. They flooded. They were transported in by boat to another friend's house. So we were lucky to be a part of a very um, close community. And so my dog just got passed around house to house to house to where he ended up at one that didn't flood. And it took, a I don't know, five or six days before I could even go in and get him just physically where the streets were. And my house stayed flooded for over two weeks, but where he was at, I was able to, to go get him. So... <laughs> it's pretty fun. And what a visual. I'm seeing alligators swimming around inside your house on the kitchen counter and all that stuff. I don't think about like living with those animals. I feel like Denver for having weather is very mild weather. I know we have tornadoes. I've never been, I was, I guess I was at a school one time and they had one time where we had to like guard against a tornado, but only once in my 10 or 12 years being here. Um, wow, okay. <laughs> so now you're in a new home, starting fresh new again. Um, and, and with your trying to, to start up your business, uh, talk to me a little bit about what it means to you about branding photography. I don't know that term necessarily. Okay, great. So branding photography is really something that, you know, obviously the large companies use, but for small businesses and the people I focus on is really being able to tell your story, you know, whether you're, um, you into yoga or you know, you're an artist or a photographer or a business coach or, you know, even a doctor, a lot of doctors in the area. It's just getting pictures of you and what you do to tell your story for you to sell your business. So it's just something that I really love. It's, you know, different than just pretty pictures. It's different than family photography. It's very strategic and, you know, designed with a purpose to help sell your business and your products. But again, going back to just telling the story of who you are, because people want to work with people they know, like, and trust. And so, you know, brand photography is just a way, it's another tool to kind of help get that information across. Sounds like it'd be very fun too, because you're dealing with people with different personalities, but you're also connecting them to their profession. And so that kind of, I've been told recently, which I really like, I'm a very creative person, but you can be often more creative with your within a box when there's are some restraints, but not all restraints. So then you can kind of push those boundaries. Do you feel that too when you have the person and the the business that you're able to be creative within that space and that just makes it fun? Yes, that's so fun. And that's usually people are doing a business that somewhat pairs with their personality, but it's just bringing out both. You know, why, why are you now a business coach? What 
has led you to that? Or if you're, you know, a photographer, what type of photography do you do? And how do we capture that in the photos I'm taking to express that to other people? And so it's great. And it's really fun because working with all different types of businesses, you're just getting to know different people and it's not, it's never the same thing. You know, it's just, it's really fun. I love it. And I love just being able to make people feel beautiful. I do headshots as well. And I think people, when they book a headshot, you're about as excited as going for a root canal. Most people are not into it. They don't want to do it. And I see it as my job to really make you feel comfortable to, you know, look, I am with you. I do not weigh what I want to weigh. I do not look the way I want to look. You know, I'm approaching 50. The skin isn't where it used to be at 20. And that's okay. We just got to celebrate where we're at. And I just try to make people feel beautiful. And then there's always a little Photoshop. <laughs> not a lot, because my, my goal is to have you look like you on your best day, but let's not discount the tools that we have. So I just think it's really fun. And I just feel honored to be able to, you know, capture people feeling their best and expressing, you know, what they like to do for life. Yeah, and taking pictures of people who are not models and not wanting that I just think about myself too. I don't know how to pose and I don't know what, you know, my smile and the look and all that stuff. That's, is that a skill that you've, that you've really worked hard on to like get people to feel comfortable? Is it something that came natural to you? I think, I think being with people is very natural to me and just um, making people feel comfortable is natural to me, but the posing and how to make you look good is an absolute skill that I have really developed over the last five or six years. When I look at the first headshots I took and I had been doing photography for over 20 years at that point, they were not as good as they are now because how to pose is a skill. And I think when you really hone in on a specific niche, you get really good at that. And so how to tilt your head, how to look, how to smile. I'm always like chin down, chin up, you know, those very tiny subtleties are what make a great portrait. And so I think that, you know, my skills over the last few years have really led me to be in a place where I feel really good with my work and how I can make anybody look and feel good behind the camera or in front of the camera, sorry. <laughs> when you're when you're telling these the, your clients these things, um, I'm thinking about this, Stephen, with this like podcast, and I'm a pretty confident person naturally, and I feel being born a, a white American male, you're, you know, born confident because you've, you've been given everything in life and, and everyone treats you that way. Um, but so many of the women that I interact with don't seem to have that same natural confidence that they certainly should have. When you're doing this and you're empowering these other people, do you, are you taking that into your words and treating yourself that way? Are you good at treating your, yourself in that same way? <laughs> It's always a work in progress, but yes, I mean, I think that, you know, unfortunately in society, in American society today and with women, it's so much about how we look and that's just such a small part of who we are. My daughter has an amazing book. She's 12. I think it's such a critical time to be learning these things. And in her book, one of the things says, what you look like is the least important thing about you. And it's, it's that duality of, you know, we don't want to put so much emphasis on how we look, but yet we're in a society where a good headshot matters. And so it's a balance of, look, you are beautiful, however you are, let's bring out that beauty. Let's not try to make it be a standard. We don't all have to 
look like, you know, Barbie or Hollywood or whatever, because really we don't. And even they don't, because that's, that, that photoshopping is so much that they don't even look like themselves. And I never want to do that. I just want to make people feel comfortable in what they have. And yeah, we don't all look exactly the way we want. Neither do I, but, but I'm so grateful that, that I'm here and that, you know, that I get to do what I do every day. And, you know, the little things don't matter if you're 20, 30, 40 pounds overweight, whatever, like, it's okay. You're here, you're healthy. Just go with it. Yeah. So, so true. Um, how do you, I didn't ask you if you feel like a badass, do you consider yourself a badass? <laughs> that a hard one. I mean, I would like to, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't think that you grow up feeling that way, but then when you look at what you contribute, you want to be like, yeah, you know, I do have a skill and some talent and some things that I've developed over the years that can make other people feel good. And if I can do that, then yeah, I guess I would consider myself a badass. <laughs> what do you, as we're wrapping up here, what do you want for your future? And that can be life-wise, professionally. Um, what do you look forward to? I just look forward to being with my family. I think, you know, with the different diversities I've faced is severe or minor as they are you just know what's important and you're and to me my family is it my husband my two kids just having their health is so so important one thing I didn't say but the morning I was flooding and getting these texts and getting these pictures obviously feeling extremely devastated and defeated a co-worker of mine I had left GSK only about three months prior a young mother who was in her young, she might have been late 20s, young 30s, had a three or four year old. She actually was killed in a car accident that morning. And so I'm sitting there with what I think is my world falling out around me. And it's not. My house was falling. My security was falling. Financials were falling. But I had my kids and I had my husband and I had my life. And to me, that's the most important thing. And so I know, you know, whatever happens, if I have them, that's all I need. Okay, you you did a way better answer than I than I even than I even expected or wanted on that. How about professionally? What would you like to see with your business moving forward? Oh, professionally, I just would love to become a go-to photographer in the area for small businesses for headshots. I love what I do. I want to help other business owners, you know, have visuals to show what they do because we are in such a visual market. So when you have beautiful magazine style pictures for your website, for your social media, for your advertising, I think it makes the business owner feel really good about themselves too. And so I just want to be the go-to person for that. Yeah, it's something that I think that people don't think of first um, or right away when they're starting a business. And then everybody heard who's done professional headshots just night and day. Um, the quality of the pictures and you really use them a lot in different scenarios. Um, so that's something that, yeah, I'm sure um, you'll, you see the impact when people do. It's, it's always hard, I think, with photography because people feel they can do it themselves in different ways and you can just to some degree, but it's still a night and day difference between the professional. And then also, I think one thing that's discounted is all the other things that come with it, like this confidence boost and like interacting with someone who does this regularly and all the things that you see from yourself. 
Yeah. And then when someone says, you know, oh, send me that over, send me your headshot, you got some on hand and you have something that you feel really good about and you feel confident in sharing instead of like, oh, cringe, where am I going to, you know, oh, I guess I looked good at that wedding last week. Let me try to cut my head out. <laughs> so when you get, when you get professional ones, you just kind of have them on hand and, and it's a good thing. Ready to go, which I do not have one. And I ask for them every week on this podcast. So I need, we'll, we'll talk when I get back into town. All right, Kristen, um, finally, before we go, I do want you to own your badass self. So I want you to, to say your name and say, and I'm a badass. I've, you told me the pronunciation of your name, name Kristen Gotham Tuma. So I'll say, I'm Kristen Gotham Tuma and I am a badass. Okay. I'm Kristen Gotham Tuma and I am a badass. Thank you again for listening to this podcast. Please go to iTunes or whatever provider you're listening on and give us a rating so we can do more of this important work. Please keep sending me suggestions of people we should interview on this show. And finally, and most importantly, please always remember that you, yes you, are a badass.